If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 is our text this morning. chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word or heard the gospel believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us to continue to fix our eyes on Christ. Lord, help us to receive your word, including myself, with all humility. We pray that by your power of your spirit that you might work and massage your word into our hearts. Lord, and cause your word to bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me take you to a chapter in church history, to a moment that bears some resemblance to what's going on here in chapter 4, the book of Acts. Actually, that isn't too long ago to where I want to take you, and that is the 1720s. It was the 1720s, between 1720 and 1760s, that the New England colonies experienced a great, or the, its first great awakening. And depending on who you ask, revivals, awakenings can be sort of synonymous terms, meaning the same thing, but the way I understand it, revivals can mean like when there's a, a sort of a revival of religion, where there's like sort of a, an awakening or a sort of a revival, I guess, a revival of or, or sort of from coming from sort of a dead religion or nominal Christianity to a Christianity that is more fervent and alive and, and zealous for the things of the Lord. Awakenings, on the other hand, the way I understand it is when there is a great movement of the Spirit and many who do not, did not previously know the Lord Jesus Christ come to understand and comprehend the gospel and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Whitfield is understood to be sort of the great evangelist of the First Great Awakening, and Jonathan Edwards is understood to be the great theologian of the First Great Awakening. In God Glorified in the Work of Redemption, which was Jonathan Edwards' first sermon to be published, in that sermon he declared that God is glorified in the work of redemption in this, that there appears in it so absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. So in other words, he's saying that salvation belongs to God and God alone. It was the preaching of George Whitfield and also the preaching of Jonathan Edwards that sort of began to spark a revival 
around New England. Again, between 1720 and 1760s, there's sort of these different outbreaks of great, this great awakening. And during that time, which is what God used to spark another movement of his spirit, was a sermon delivered by Jonathan Edwards, his, probably his most famous and most widely read sermon, which many of you have heard before, perhaps, and that is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's unfortunate because it is because of that sermon that Jonathan Edwards today is, has sort of developed this bad rep of being sort of a fire and brimstone preacher, which is further, furthest from the truth. In that sermon, Jonathan Edwards equally matched his imagery of judgment with imagery of redemption. In that sermon, he says that Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door, crying and calling with a loud voice to poor sinners. Awakenings certainly had its people who loved it, cheered it on, right? You expect that. There are some who are pretty neutral about it, even within the church, and even within the church, and especially outside of church, right? Great Awakenings, such as the first Great Awakening, also had its opponents as well. Peter and John and John in Acts chapter 3, they went and Peter preached the gospel there in the temple. And then what we get to see here is is a great awakening, a great movement of God in bringing unbelievers to turn to faith and faith to Jesus Christ as Savior. And as we immediately see in chapter 4, is that this great awakening was not without its opponents, which leads firstly to an inevitable confrontation. Jesus warns us in the Gospels to not be surprised when there is resistance or confrontation or even persecution on the count of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in John 16, 2, warning his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They think they're doing some kind of service to the Lord and persecuting God's people. He warns that they will put you out of the synagogue. They'll put you out of your social circles. Those who are opponents of the gospel might put you out of your workplace because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. John 15, 19, Jesus continues and says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus says that believing in the gospel and receiving salvation is likened to being taken out of the world and, bring, and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So then... He says, it is no surprise, it should be of no surprise when you who have been taken out of the world receives or is confronted with opposition by the world because the world recognizes that you are no longer a part of it. Indeed, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So gospel proclamation 
and gospel living will inevitably attract confrontation if you live out to the gospel long enough because you are no longer part of the world. So that if you want to avoid confrontation, if you want to avoid being hated, if you want to avoid the tension, the awkwardness that comes with being a believer and living out as a believer and sharing the gospel, then all you got to do is just be like the rest of the world. Probably one of the most liked people in all the planet are ice cream salesmen. Everybody loves an ice cream salesman because once you hear the little jingle coming around the corner, everybody goes because they want ice cream. They want to get their children ice cream. Right? My wife oftentimes reminds me of this. Ice cream salesmen are liked by everybody until, of course, they run out of ice cream. Right? But if you want to avoid confrontation, if you want to be liked by the rest of the world, then you'll be sort of like an ice cream salesman and you'll try to please everybody and you'll try to do what everybody wants you to do and you want to be like the rest of the world. But the Lord Jesus calls us to something different. He does not call us to be sort of these ice cream Christians. But if you want to be more like Christ, then Jesus says, then expect to have some kind of confrontation at different points in your life. But even as Jesus talks about this expectation of confrontation and tension and persecution, he doesn't do so without also providing his people with some encouragement. There's at least three encouragements that he says in that context of John 15, 16 and talking about persecution and confrontation. He says there that he shares these things with his people in order to keep you and I from falling away. In other words, God's means of keeping you and I tethered to Jesus Christ is by Jesus forewarning us that these things are to be expected. Secondly, in that context of John 15, 16, Jesus says that he also provides the helper, that helper being the Holy Spirit of God. He is the comforter. He's the one who assists us who helps us in our weaknesses so that when we experience these difficult things and tension in our lives on account of the gospel, that we don't do so alone, but we have someone who is there with us, namely the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, Jesus also assures his people that those who are sorrowful because of the persecution or tensions or confrontation that they endure in this life, that their sorrow will one day for sure turn into joy. The promise of the gospel is that the rivering tears of sorrow will one day be turned into rivering tears of joy. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. And certainly the apostles, because they have the Spirit of God, and the part of the Spirit of God is to remind believers of the teachings of Jesus Christ, coming then head-to-head with the religious authorities, probably thought of these things as this was happening. They're immediately, upon preaching the gospel, confronted with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect at that time. Interestingly, they actually traced their origins all the way back to Zadok, who was the high priest under the reign of King Solomon. 
they were an elite class, part of the, the arist aristocracy. They had powerful connections with the Romans, and they were interested in doing so, in keeping those relationships for their own political and economic interests. And because of these things, they were often disliked by common man. The Pharisees were different. The Pharisees at least were mostly well-liked by the common man because the Pharisees related to them. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were sort of like the top of the class, and almost nobody sort of resonated with them, and they could not resonate with the common man. In fact, they actually many times had to work closely with the Pharisees because they knew that the Pharisees oftentimes had the heart of the people, which the Sadducees did not have. And their doctrine was also very different, certainly different from New Testament teaching, and many of those things were also different from the Pharisees as well. The Sadducees believed or were, very, were extremely self-sufficient, so they would have hated Romans chapter 8, which speaks of the sovereignty of God and salvation. They emphasized man's responsibility and his will more so than the sovereignty of God. They denied, as many of you know, the resurrection of the dead. They denied also the afterlife. They denied also the spiritual realm, that there is any such thing as angels and demons. So for them, this life was it. So I guess believing in it is sort of kind of a annihilation, annihilationism. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But essentially, that after the, you depart from this world, there's, there's no going anywhere else. You're just done, dead, you, don't, you cease to exist. So these are the individuals, this is the group, rather, that they come head-to-head -head with as they're preaching the gospel. And they are persecuted, secondly, because of teaching and its content. They're persecuted because they're teaching and because of the content of their teaching. So they were teaching. They're in there, in the temple, something that the Sadducees oversaw, and they see these, these commoners teaching the crowds when they, I mean, they're the Levites, they're educated, they're trained, they have, they've received instruction and mentorship through rabbis. Right, so they see these men and they might ask, well, who are you to teach? What are your credentials? Who's your rabbi? Where's your diploma? Where's your certificate? Right, even later on, as we continue through Acts chapter 4, they're going to also realize that these are, they're perplexed by these men, by Peter and John, because they're uneducated. So, they don't like what they're doing because they're teaching. They don't have authority to teach in their minds. And also because of the content of their teaching. What are they teaching? They're teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is a resurrection for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And I don't think this is the only thing that they're teaching, but I think Luke is making a point and drawing this out because this is what differentiated their teaching from the teachings of the Sadducees. Because again, Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection much less would they believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But this is exactly what they're teaching, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, and they would also go on to teach, well, what does it mean for everybody else? What does it mean for you and I? It means that we also can experience the resurrection from the dead as well. Right, that is the great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't preach the biblical gospel and leave out the resurrection. 
Right? That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It is the resurrection that shows us, that comforts us, that encourages us that Christ did indeed pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. So they would go on to teach that there is a God who, who resurrects people from the dead. Paul will also teach us in 1 Corinthians that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means everything. Because if Jesus Christ isn't resurrected, then there is no guarantee that you and I as believers would be resurrected. And if there is no resurrection, then our hope is only contained in this life. And that means that we ought to just live it up, do whatever we want, because at the end of the day, nothing really matters. But it is the resurrection that gives meaning to everything that we do, whether it is cooking, whether it is cleaning, whether it is cleaning or taking care of children, whether it is going to work, whether it is engaging in some kind of hobby, whether it is engaging with unbelievers or neighbors or believers, that whatever it is you do, that it means something because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it also means then, because there is a resurrection from the dead, that there is a glorious outcome for those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. They have the guarantee of a place in heaven, a place where tears of joy are rivering down the faces of the resurrected. So certainly, Peter and John would be preaching of the great judgment of God very much like Jonathan Edwards did in talking about sinners in the hands of an angry God, but it wasn't to the neglect of preaching the great truths and promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That there is salvation in Jesus' name. That you can be saved from the judgment that your sins deserve. That there is a glorious outcome if you believe in Jesus Christ. That there is only things to be gained by believing in Christ Jesus as Savior. So because of their teaching and their content, they faced opposition, they were persecuted, they were arrested. And so from this summarized, condensed interaction between Peter and John and the Sadducees, what we see here thirdly is the magnetism of the gospel. The gospel has this magnetic effect, and it, and it pulls from two different directions. From one direction, as Jesus warned, it draws persecution. It can draw tension. It can draw confrontation. And it's not long before they experience this persecution. First, they're preaching the gospel, right? And Pentecost, we saw that before. And certainly that would have attracted the, the attention of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees. And they're probably like, well, it's just nothing. Ah, it's, just, it's a little bit concerning, but it, it, it's, it's the first time. This is probably going to die out, whatever. But then they see it happening a second time. Right, first time, 3,000 people, it says, were saved. And now this time, 5,000. And that's just counting the men. So if you count the women, it's probably double that number. So now they're getting worried. Now they're getting panicky. All right, now we need to do something. The first time, all right, that was a little concerning, but now we're really concerned. So it's not long before the apostles of Jesus Christ are confronted with this persecution, this confrontation. 
Because the gospel, the gospel aggravates. The gospel annoys, as it says here. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Again, Jesus doesn't, isn't shy about this in the gospels. He warns us about these things. The gospel does do these things. It offends, it aggravates, and it's for many different reasons. But I think one of the main reasons, one of the overarching reasons why the gospel tends to offend and aggravate people, and even to the point of annoying people, it is because the gospel threatens something. It threatens something that people enjoy or love or attach to. Right? When there's something you're attached to, something that you value, something that you treasure, and something outside of you comes and threatens to take it away, we don't respond very well. If anything, we'll try to be as protective about it as we can. We'll get fearful, we'll get anxious, and we might even go on an offensive. So when the gospel is proclaimed, oftentimes people feel a sense, though they might not admit it, a sense of anxiety or dread because the gospel threatens to take away something that most people, that something that people are attached to. John 11:48 to the religious teachers felt this, this, these same feelings on account of the gospel. It says, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him, in John 11:48, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were afraid of losing their place amongst the crowds, amongst the people, their, their prestige, their honor amongst the people. John 12 it tells us, the religious teachers, that they were shy, that many of them were believing in Jesus, but they were shy about it because they loved the glory of men more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, the gospel threatened their attachment to man's prestige and honor and praise. In Acts chapter 19, when the heathen are confronted with the gospel, they go on the offensive because they, their livelihood is threatened, because their livelihood is based on creating idols of a false god. Well, when people hear the gospel and believe, well, they're fearful, well, we might lose our income here because these people are preaching this gospel that is contrary to what we believe. Not only that, but our great goddess, Artemis, will lose her position if we continue to let these Christians go on in this way. So they become fearful their livelihood is threatened, and their attachment to this God is threatened. The gospel tends to offend and aggravate because people love the world and the things of the world. They love their status. They love their lusts. They love material possessions. They love their security that comes from the world and the things that they can be in control of. And so when the gospel says that you have to be able to, you have to be willing to give that up in order to follow Jesus, not everybody, but in some cases, the response is resistance. Even when it comes to government as well. Government can, sees the gospel as threatening as well. Because what does the gospel teach? The gospel teaches that there is a greater authority than the, than the governments of men. 
So when you have a gospel being proclaimed that says that there is a greater authority, then government can see God as sort of their enemy and competing for that same kind of authority in the lives of men. Sharing and proclaiming the biblical gospel cannot help but offend. It's not that we intend to offend anybody. It's just telling the truth can offend sometimes. But we don't want to be sort of a terrible doctor who recognizes something is wrong with you and then lies to you and says everything is fine. That would be guilty of malpractice. But we don't want to be found by God to be guilty of malpractice. We are called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. God making his appeal through us to the world to be reconciled to God. So we want to be able to preach the biblical gospel and not water it down and not lighten the gospel in order to it, for it to be more pleasing to the ears of men. So the gospel pulls in that kind of direction, from that direction, but also pulls from the opposite direction, and that is it draws people to salvation. Which is what we see in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So even though Peter and John were persecuted, they were arrested, the gospel still had its effect. It still was bringing people into salvation. And in this way, we see another awakening happening in the early days of the, first, of the church. God is drawing people to salvation, and that is the magnetism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word is unbound, though the apostles were bound. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The gospel will have its effect according to the will of the Lord, that even if its proclaimers are bound and imprisoned, as long as the church continues to exist, which it will, because it has the authority of God, as long as the church continues to proclaim the gospel, the gospel will still have its effect. It will still draw people to salvation. Because God has created the gospel to have this magnetizing kind of effect. There are several different ways that you can demagnetize a magnet. You can expose it to the hot temperature, you can just drop it on the ground and its impact might decrease its magnetism. You can also hammer it and that can weaken its magnetism. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel will never lose its magnetism. No matter how high you turn up the furnace of persecution, the power of the gospel will never be weakened. No matter how many times you might say you might consider yourself as sort of like dropping the ball, like I share the gospel and I feel like oh, I kind of missed it, I I didn't quite share this part, or I feel like I maybe could have said this clearly. But the power of the gospel is not embedded in your ability to be able to say it eloquently. The power of the gospel is in the power, and it's in its own has its own power. So even we cannot weaken the power of the gospel. 
And no matter how hard religious authorities or political authorities might hammer the gospel with laws and regulations and even threats, you cannot imprison the gospel of Jesus Christ and diminish its strength. Which then means that a small church furnished with a weapon of the gospel is certainly more powerful than the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and certainly stronger than the power of the devil. The priest Gamaliel, I think, was incredibly wise when he said in Acts 5.33, again, the apostles were preaching the gospel, it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Let him alone. If this is a movement of man, just watch. It'll come to nothing. Just like every other movement of man in the history of the world has always come to nothing. Right? But this is, if this is something generated by God, authored by God, backed by God, that you might be found to be opposing God himself and persecuting his people. So it is with the church and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who would confront or even oppose the gospel that we share is essentially not opposing us, but ultimately they're opposing the Lord. And the reason why the church still stands today is because this is of God. And there's the reason why the church will continue to stand no matter if furnace of persecution is, is turned up, it will continue to stand because this is, originates in God and is propelled forward by God and is backed by God. So then, fourth and lastly, let us be unafraid to be magnetic. The Word of God is unbound. The Word of God is powerful. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power is not in you and I. The power is in the gospel. But the power of the gospel comes when it is proclaimed, not when it is shut up, not when it is contained, but when it is proclaimed. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
God makes his appeal to the world to be reconciled to him through his people as they share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we share, this is God's appeal working through us that the individual might be reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. But there is no making an appeal. God does not make his appeal through us when we are silent. And the very idea here of appealing and imploring is the idea of pleading and begging. Many of us perhaps are quite ready to share the gospel, but how many of us are ready to beg and plead people to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior? Can we be that earnest? Can we plead people around us trust in Christ? To have the same kind of affections that Jesus had when he told his disciples that he desires for them to be with him where he is to see his glory. Can we work in our affections and pleading to people, I want you to be where I am going. I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to be there. I want you to be saved. Won't you come to Christ? Won't you be saved? How are you doing in your prayers? Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for our believers? And are you earnest? Are you going before the throne of grace and earnestly begging and pleading the Lord, God, please save God, please save. Would you be willing to be that kind of an uncomfortable and awkward neighbor who continues to share the gospel until they're told to desist? Would you be willing to be that awkward and uncomfortable neighbor who continues to encourage or to invite people to just come to service? So I wanted to say a great parable. I think it's in is it Luke. I think it's in Luke 11 where, um, where Jesus is talking about the, uh, the, the, the person who had guests come in the middle of the night, and so he goes to his neighbor's house and he continues to knock, I need some food, can you help me out? I'm paraphrasing here, of course. And he won't open the door because he says, it's, it's late, I'm sleeping, my family is sleeping, and he keeps knocking, and finally he opens the door and gives him what he needs. And Jesus says, he opens the door not because he's his friend, but because of his neighbor's impudence. Because he keeps annoying the neighbor. I mean, would we, would we be willing to be that kind of annoying? Hey, come to church. Hey, come, come, come. Come, because we want you to be saved. Come, because we want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the power of salvation is not in you. It's in the gospel. So that if somebody comes that you invited, you know, and they leave and not saved... Right, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. In a way, you can sort of dust your hands. That doesn't mean that you stop sharing the gospel with that person. But the power is in the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Your job and mine is not to get anyone saved. Your job and my job is simply just to share and proclaim and invite, to beg, to plead, people to come to Christ. And I think something that might encourage us and further help us 
in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is to meditate on the glories of heaven. Think about heaven. Certainly we are called to warn unbelievers of the great judgment that is coming on account of their sins. But let us also be evangelists of the glories of heaven. Let us proclaim people to people the great things that await those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Let us preach about the God who blesses his people, who blessed them even in this day by receiving the Spirit of God, by the Lord graciously giving us these small appetizers in this life that are intended to whet our appetites for the glories of heaven. Like a person who fixes their mind on a subject of their passion will speak excitedly about his subject, so the Christian who meditates on the glories of heaven cannot help but herald that heaven with greater joy and with greater boldness. Let us be glad, sharers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly the magnetism of the gospel in our lives can become weakened over time. So how do you strengthen that, that magnetism? And they say that if you want to increase the strength of a magnet, then you might rub it against a stronger magnet. Or just hit it with a stronger magnet. And the impact over time should increase the strength of the weaker magnet. What we need is to continue to so to speak, be hit with the gospel. Be hit with the glories of heaven. Think, meditate, relish on the glories of the gospel. Relish on the great salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Work on restoring the joy of your salvation so that you might be more encouraged and equipped to Claim this gospel to others. Rub shoulders with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and talk about the gospel. Talk about the salvation you have in Jesus Christ. God has given to the church an incredible treasure, and that is a treasure of the gospel. But it is also a treasure that is intended to be shared, not to be contained. Man might fear losing a great deal of things that they are attached to in this life. Hence why at times, not always, but might re resist the gospel. But let us proclaim to them also the things that are of gain that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing but gain. There's nothing but reward. Let me leave you with this. Hopefully, start some the gears of your mind and thinking about heaven. Jonathan Edwards once said, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any, or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. 
These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Let's pray. Father, we, as sinners saved by your grace, Lord, we understand and we know the judgment that our sins deserve. Father, we want to increase our understanding of the gospel, our need for this salvation. God, but we also desire to better comprehend the great joys of the Christian life, the great joys of heaven, the great joys of the rewards that await those who are in Christ. Lord, help us to work in our own hearts that we might be that much more animated and excited and joy-filled at the thought of heaven, this eternal Eden, this paradise that awaits for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, and in meditating on these things, Lord, warm the furnace of our hearts so that we might be more emblazoned by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we might then in turn, hopefully prayerfully by the power of your Spirit, be that much more equipped to go and share the gospel warning every man but also compelling every man to come to Christ and receive the great joy that there is in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Not only do we pray that you might turn us into evangelists of the gospel, but Lord, also turn us into joy-filled evangelists of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, increase our heart's desire to see a great movement of your Spirit that we might be able, Lord, we pray, we ask, we plead, Lord, that you would allow our eyes to see your glorious salvation that we might see our loved ones, that we might see our friends, that we might see our neighbors, that we might see co-workers, that we might see strangers to us come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, do this great work. Do a great work in 